1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB archives. Greetings from Brandeis University. Welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today, as usual, your hosts are me, Elizabeth Ferry, and my brilliant colleague and friend, John Plotz. And
0: my brilliant friend also. <laughs> you yeah. are a Okay, friend. good, that's all I want.
1: And we are joined by my equally brilliant colleague and equally brilliant friend, Chris Wally. Um, Chris is professor of anthropology. Hello, Chris. Hi. Hi, thank Chris. You. Hi, <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me be here. Uh, Chris is professor of anthropology at MIT. Uh, her project, Exit Zero, uses family stories to examine the long-term impact of deindustrialization in the United States. It includes several iterations, including an award-winning book with the University of Chicago Press called Exit Zero, Family and Class in Post-Industrial Chicago. Uh, the book won a number of awards, including the CLR James Award from the Working Class Studies Association and second place for the Victor Turner Prize in Ethnographic Writing. Um, the project also includes a documentary film made with director Chris Bobel and a current collaboration, still current, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah collaboration with web designer Jeff Soik and the Southeastern Chicago Historical Museum to create an NEH-funded interactive archive and storytelling website that highlights multi-generational storytelling around deindustrialization in the United States. And that website is supposed to launch in... June of 2020. June of 2020. Mm
2: -hmm. And where does the term Exit Zero come Come from? from? So exit zero is the um the the highway exit ramp number for the old steel mill communities, (laughs) and he he had after the first time he had visited my family and he was like wow the kind of like legacy of kind of the steel mills closing I mean it's so heavy here, Um, and we were leaving and going down the exit ramp and it said kind of exit zero and he's like oh my god (laughs) somebody has to make a film about this place and call it exit zero because that kind of sense of um of being overlooked. um,
0: yeah. Being, yeah. Being Road to nowhere. Last exit to nowhere. Being, Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. Over yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, exactly. So, um, so we started working on that. So he became interested. We were both interested then, and there there were a lot of visual materials. It's a very visual place. These kind of old, big, old industrial areas. Um, so um, we started working on the visual part of that. So we were—I was actually working on the book, and we were working on the film simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And it was really trying to capture what was happening in the area through whatever. Media were available, so it wasn't that I intended to start out doing like, oh, it's going to be a multimodal project, but that right. how do we best capture the experience, the transformation in places like this, and how do you get best get at the experiential dimensions? And mm-hmm. the other thing that was really important for me <coughs> was that, you know, when I was in college and first started reading sociological accounts of places like this, you know, it was written in very technical theoretical language, and it felt like it was material that was written um, about communities like Southeast Chicago, not for people in them. And I remember being mm-hmm. offended at the time as a teenager. How come this isn't more in conversation with people in the area? Right, C- right.
0: Mm-hmm. C- Can I ask a sort of random English professor's um, sure. question, which is that like, you know, uh, Chicago actually, as far as literature goes, seems like an extremely storied place. I mean, I think about like, I don't know, Theodore Dreiser, Willa yeah. Cather, yeah. Carl Sandberg. And yeah. did did any, did any of that stuff... Did it feel, did that feel like it gave a voice to Chicago or does that stuff just feel so long ago that it doesn't represent what Chicago is now?
2: Um, well, it,
0: I mean, I'm not saying everyone in Chicago is probably reading Carl Sandberg in high school, right. though. Maybe they are. Right. But, yeah. but, you know, does it It does it speak? I mean, this in a way gets to like what it means to live in a deindustrializing city rather than an industrializing city. Yeah.
2: But, hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, one of the the things that I I actually end up teaching from Chicago's history is Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, Mm, for example, right? I mean, there's so much literature that's kind of about the harsh rawness of... Um, capitalism in the early period. So there's the, the great kind of literary works yeah. about Frank Chicago.
0: Norris too. Frank Norris, yeah.
2: exactly. Um, and there's also at the same time um, the University of Chicago, Chicago School of Sociology. That's true. what I was. Which, of. Yeah. for anthropologists, I think that's probably more, you know, kind of that's the storied kind of way of, totally. of looking at the it. life
0: cycle of a taxi dancer. Yeah, it's straight yeah. corner society. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. But again, that you know that kind of those kinds of sociological accounts kind of felt like looking at people rather than being in conversation with people so the idea partly Mm -hmm. for the multimodal work and the emphasis on stories as being at the center of this was also to find ways to work that would feel like it was more inviting people from the area into the conversation Right. and so the book is written around stories Um, the film is told through family stories so the idea was to use family stories as a way to kind of create more conversation with people in southeast Chicago Um, and that's largely been the case. It's actually been quite mm-hmm. nice going back that there's been a kind of, you know, you tell stories and then people tell stories back. And mm-hmm. so it's been great to hear lots of people's stories of their own experiences with deindustrialization in response to the work.
1: Yeah. So that's yeah. been fantastic. You've, the way you've described times that you've gone back and given talks there and, and how... how um, Yeah, how much, how many things are going in how many different directions in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little more, actually, about that with respect to the third part of the project? Because that seems like the real kind of coming to fruition of that whole concept.
2: Exactly. So we're working on this um, website project that's a collaboration with the Southeast Chicago Historical Museum, which is a community-based museum that's been around on all volunteer labor for 40 years now. Mm. Um, And so if the idea in the Exit Zero book and film is to use family stories as a way to get at larger issues around deindustrialization, changing class structure in the U.S., the idea of the website project is to use all these materials, these objects that people have saved from the community Mm -hmm. and the stories that they tell around and through those objects, and to really get at the full range of storytelling in these old industrial communities. Mm -hmm. And even though people, you know, sort of in the Trump era, people tend to think of the working class, you know, once again as sort of white working class males, but it's always been an incredibly diverse place. Um, many Mexican Americans, many African Americans, working in the steel mills um, since since the World War One era. Mm-hmm. And so, what we're trying to do in this website project is to use people' stuff that they save to really get at the kind of diversity of stories in yeah. those communities. And again, for the whole project, what does this stuff feel like? What was the experience of deindustrialization like? Not yeah. just kind of at a some kind of statistical way, but like what did it feel like for people?
1: Right, right. Which we'll really pick up on once we start talking about the novel. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what do people say about why they saved something and what they had in mind when they did? Was it for their kids or was it, you know, some some people must be more kind of archival and sensibility than others, but.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because um, the museum was just forming right as the steel mills were going down. And then people really donated an incredible amount of material. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what was going on, sometimes more articulated, sometimes less articulated, but um, I think that people really felt like the history of the area was disappearing or kind of what they had mm-hmm. grown up with, what they had known, that th- they, I think a lot of people w- were that feeling that their past was being erased in some sense and they mm. wanted it to be, remembered mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so the museum is incredible it's got like 10,000 images it's got I forget 84 different scrapbooks wow. you know letters yeah. you know 250 pieces yeah. of clothing and objects right. just all these incredible materials and part of the point is how th- all the storytelling in which these m- material objects are wrapped up in and the museum also has about 180 oral histories so we're interweaving the oral histories with the objects that people
1: mm-hmm. the pe- objects that right. people save right. and the whole
2: movies that they took and yeah
1: um, yeah and their imagined public, I mean, probably very many different imagined publics, but maybe their own, the neighborhood going forward, maybe a broader audience. Yeah,
2: I mean, we're trying to kind of capture uh, hopefully multiple audiences with this, but, yeah. but one of the main ones is for the community itself. Yeah. Um, people in the, and I think a lot of older people. You know, I think for a lot of younger people, they kind of feel this heavy weight of the history there, but they don't necessarily know that history. Right. And they don't know how to connect to it. And a lot of the older generation that remembers really want to be able to be in conversation again with the younger people about this. Yeah.
0: Can I ask the question sure. about that community? And it's kind of yeah. along the lines of the Benedict Anderson imagined communities yeah. argument, which is yeah. I just feel like one of the things that, as an outsider coming to Chicago, one of the things that clearly distinguishes it but lets you feel how American cities used to be is the neighborhoodness of it and i'm just wondering basically if you could talk about how that question of i'm going to call it balkanization though maybe that's an unfair word how neighborhood identity has changed in the deindustrializing times cuz i feel like like yeah. elizabeth and i both lived in baltimore for a while and baltimore used to be incredibly like that mm-hmm. but you know the changing patterns of wealth and poverty and race have yeah. somewhat erased those neighborhood distinctions mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. use the word community which i almost heard a capital c there i was wondering you know if it if it still feels like the borders do you know what i'm yeah. asking yeah. whether the borders remain or yeah. whether things are yeah. being reconfigured
2: yeah. no yeah. and that's a very fair question about the yeah. community with a capital c particularly since my earlier book and work was all about taking apart community mm. with a capital right. c yes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> But anyway, the dilemmas um, of
1: being an anthropologist. <laughs> yes. no.
2: But I think part of, I mean, part of what we're trying to do is, I mean, when we talk about Southeast Chicago, there's a whole range of different c- neighborhoods that were there in the past, and those neighborhoods were completely riven by ethnic and racial divisions from the very beginning into into mm-hmm. the, the the current moment. Right. Um, but as you said, that's too, like neighborhoods' identities were incredibly central for people, and so that's one of the the ways we're going to try to get at those larger histories is to think about those those kind of ethnic and racial tensions within mm-hmm. within neighborhoods and communities and yep. what those came out of. Yep. So we're actually trying to kind of both construct and deconstruct the community in yes, quotes um, yeah. um, at the same time with this. But one of the things we do want to do with the objects, um, there's an art historian who talks about with, um, with albums that mm-hmm. how, w- you know, people's photo albums that... Those things, the way they work for people, is people, you know, would usually tell stories in relation to the album. Like you show the album right. to people, you you, right. you know, you
1: talk about the these story stories, of an event than that an it's object, a, exactly yeah.
2: that it's a conversation. Yeah. So if well, one of the things we're trying to do with this museum is to kind of reanimate mm. that conversation in the community with the objects that mm-hmm. older members of the community have saved, and younger people are saving as well. Mm. But to kind of reanimate some of these kinds of suspended conversations, as as Martha Langford re- refers to it. So to me, that's the part of the kind of the community there in some yeah. sense of how do we reanimate these kinds of conversations at the same time we're acknowledging that there was a lot of fighting there was a lot of ethnic and racial divisions there was a right. lot of um, those were very tempestuous places at the same time and we had there's a lot of material in the museum actually on some of the civil rights struggles in the mm.
1: area.
2: I think one of the things that's really striking with the materials from the museum when you see you know kind of uh, again photographs and other materials and you see the diversity of people who worked in these steel mills yeah. um, you know again this kind of idea now that somehow you know the working class you know quote-unquote working class being talked about again as being sort of largely mm-hmm. white and male when again th- this, these have always been incredibly diverse places and that's one of the things right. we really want to emphasize with
1: this website project right, right. and that's an incredibly political politically important intervention at this moment um, you wrote an article about uh, the Trump election for American ethnologist right mm-hmm. yeah. 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 to, what's to yeah. talk about
2: sort of um, Discomfort with talking about class and yeah. how Chicago relates to that. Yeah. I mean, so you have anthropologists like Sherry Ortner who have mm-hmm. argued for some time that that kind of idea that Americans are uncomfortable often talking about class and so we tend to displace it onto other things about yeah. conversations about gender, about conversations about race. Right. Um, and so we have to think about all those Education. things and how they're co-constituted. Yeah. But on the other hand, we also need to keep them intellectually be able to Just see distinct the distinctions yeah. b- right. between each other at the same time and, how, right. and um, challenge our displacements and our, you know, kind of what happens when we don't have a language of class to talk about the world yeah. in which we're in. And I right. i think that's kind of a lot of what happens sometimes in the United States, that this anger gets displaced onto other kinds of um, things, even at, as, again, right. everything is tied up and bound up with each other at the same time. Which
1: is a... Also, a divide and conquer. Exactly has a divide and conquer effect, at least if exactly not an intention. Yes. Exactly. Right.
2: And yes. in terms of so Chicago around this, no, I think um, you know I don't actually use when I was working on the Exit Zero book, and I would go home. I wouldn't use working class, mm. the language working class, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of people took it, it to be insulting mm-hmm. right I mean, because after that post world War two period it was like okay, but no we were we were middle class and I, right. I think I think my mom challenged me at one point after the first thing she read on about this, and she said, you, you know you called your dad's family working class and to her she read that is is e- e- a- an implication that the of like being stupid.
1: Right, uneducated <laughs> That, that, ex- that and Exactly,
2: and so again that kind of US uh-huh. kind of meritocratic notion then if you use the term working class you're saying that somebody's right. screwed up in some way because they ended up be, being working class which uh-huh. is I think part of the hesitance about using that language but right. I do think that like that right now, because things are shifting so much and inequality has become so extensive, there is a real shift. I mean, it used to be mm-hmm. everybody in the U.S. used to call themselves middle class, and more and more people are not identifying that way anymore, I mean, reflecting the changes that are happening. Right. So again, I think this is a really interesting moment in class terms, because those old labels and how we count class and think about class doesn't work. And people realize it doesn't work, but we're not quite sure what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah, I feel right. like I the think, category yeah. of yeah.
0: underclass is totally fascinating that way, because it has a, this kind of quality of objection in it. Mm-hmm. So it's like below the working class lies the underclass, but then it's mm-hmm. another way. It's just talking about you know a substantial decile or pentile of the population mm-hmm. that just doesn't have access to education, but right. people right. don't want to call themselves underclass. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Then My only point about England is that people
0: actually are you know, willing to call themselves working class yeah. in England, oh, yeah. which is different. Right. It makes yeah.
2: sense. And it is. I mean, the the the, the, the kind of history of. Um, kind of working-class identity and sort of unions there. And the thing I was just there for a conference, and there was a number of folks who were coming out of coal mining communities who were writing about the deindustrialization of those areas. And some of them were talking about, you know, some of the coal mining communities have been there for 450 years. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. we're talking in a place like southeast Chicago, we're talking about late late 19th century, we're talking about 450 years worth, worth right. of history um, that's been transformed yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is – It is fascinating how there's both so many parallels, but also so many differences in how class gets talked about. I mean,
1: this is a side point, but I always think it's an interesting thing about mining, since Mm -hmm. I study mining, is that in a lot of mining working class communities, the place is there because of the mines, right? Because you can't actually decide where the mines are gonna be in advance, Mm -hmm. right? So, sort of like why somebody saying like, Mm -hmm. that's so funny that there are always rivers next to cities. It's like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that sort of idea that, like, not only is this a place that has a long history, but the entire point of the place had to yes. do with this yeah. this resource.
2: Yeah. And the the area that I work and write about, Southeast Chicago, is exactly the same thing. It was mm-hmm. um, a wetland region right. um, that a lot of it was created on landfill that came out of the slag from the steel mills itself. So even the kind of places where the land is
1: all about, the history is all about. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should shift a little yes. bit to talk about this North would be a great South. This would be
0: a great time to talk about Gaskell, actually. Yes. Yeah.
1: So yeah. Uh, we do have another book on the table on the, on the metaphorical table here, uh, which is by Elizabeth Gaskell, um, and the title of it is North and South. And John, do you have the date of it?
0: Yeah, it's 18. I did a second ago. 1854.
1: 1854. Um, so this is a um,
0: near, near near enough to the dawning of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, certainly there'd been like 90 years of technological breakthroughs, but, you know, this is the moment when you get like large scale industrial factory operations. And
1: that's very much in the forefront. And it's, you know, like a lot of 19th century novels, it's in a kind of romantic idiom. Um, So a young woman, um, because her father has a crisis of conscience in the church and has to leave the church and his comfortable living down south. Um, they moved to Manchester. and The um,
0: Chicago of Britain? The can we Chicago say? of Maybe. Britain,
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know how the Manchesterians would feel about it.
0: Mancunians, like man. <laughs>
1: Mancunians. <laughs> oh, oh.
0: Who cares what they think? They have yeah. two winning soccer teams. They can think whatever they want. <laughs>
1: um, and uh, one of the things that I really love about this novel is the way that um, she talks about what you could call the structure of feeling of industrialization. So I think um, given that, you know, um, Chris, your book is so is so rich with respect to stories and feeling and kind of the relationship between um, livelihood and life in all of its many other dimensions, um, those two really spoke to each other. Um, maybe I'll just give one example, which is one of my favorite moments of the book, where um, uh, she is uh, meeting um, a worker and his daughter um, for the first time, and they, they come to be um, crucial characters in the book. Um, and she uh, meets him and she says, oh, I think we must be neighbors. We meet so often on this road. I'm not going to try to reproduce the accent, which is Uh, there is a kind of dialect in the book Um, we can add
0: that later in post production (laughs) Right.
1: Uh, we put up at 9 Francis Street second turn to the left after you've passed the golden dragon and your name I must not forget that I'm none ashamed of my name it's Nicholas Higgins she's called Betsy Higgins what are you asking for Margaret was surprised at this last question, for at Hellstone, which is in the south, it would have been an understood thing about the inquiries she had made that she intended to come and call upon any poor neighbor whose name and habitation she had asked for. Um, so, you know, she, she sort of takes it for granted that this would be appreciated, that you would just come without being invited to somebody's house. And um, they, uh, he responds, well, I'm none so fond of having strange folk in my house, But then he says, well, you're a foreigner, and maybe you don't know many folk, and you've given my wench here flowers out of your own hand. You may come if you like. Mm. So I just think that's a great kind of moment of this, what, you know, as you say, at the sort of very crux of industrialization, this kind of clash of two different… Yeah, modes of relationship between classes.
0: Totally. And can I actually say something about that in terms of the yeah. title North and South which is that she has the Southern attitude and the Southern attitude is that she feels that she will come and call upon any poor neighbor whose name and habitation she had asked for. So the category poor neighbor there is like a caste designation. Right. In Southern parlance, yep. it's given, like, I am gentry, and you are right. one of the poor. One of the tenants, Therefore, you usually, ought to know right? your place, which is to come and be visited by me. Yeah. And what's And to changed, appreciate it. Totally. And what's changed in Manchester, and here we are in Waltham, which also had factories paying high wages in like the 1810s, mm-hmm. is what's changed is that the people who are workers in this context no longer take it for granted that their status is to be basically, yeah, as you say, to be like peasants, to be like, yeah. you know, to be like, in a relation set of dependence. Place. Yeah. So, so the thing that's so great about North and South, which I think is still true, like one hundred and seventy years later, you can still feel the tension of the working class people inside that novel striving to be seen in some other category than that of poor neighbor, and that right. and that's what's so fresh about it, and I feel like so relevant in a moment of deindustrialization, is that we're watching a shifting of category relationships that have to do with the disappearance of this kind of, you know, high-value-waged labor. But Gaskell is writing about its appearance. Like, she's writing about how people can get along with each other once they have these new social and economic relations. Right, right,
1: yeah. She has another part right near there where she describes Margaret's, uh, who's the woman from the South, uh, her discomfort of walking around on the street and, you know, these both women and men who are workers have no problem just kind of addressing her directly and saying like, oh, what a pretty smile or 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 grabbing her shawl to feel the fabric and stuff. And this is very like shocking to her.
0: So. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Totally. I was thinking about those Lowell working women uh, of the 1820s who basically, you know, could start buying themselves nice dresses. And, you know, you can buy a dress that basically looks like what upper class people are wearing and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. One of the things I I thought was really great about the novel is that, so you really get, you know, so in the context of these strikes happening in Mm -hmm. um, in Milton, I mean, really Manchester, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, is the fact that it's so from the point, trying to be from the point of view of both groups in
1: their interest interactions with each other. What, what that a, what is the a, novel, the narrative is trying to be. A- exactly,
2: uh-huh. sorry. Yeah, um, exactly. So so really trying to get at sort of what does, you, you know, something like an industrial strike, what does that look like from the point of view of the factory owner? What does it look from yeah. the point of view of the, the, right. the sort of unionizer, factory worker? And their, the, you know, their interactions with each other. And one of the things I'm wondering for, and in, in, in John, you might know more about this thinking about um, in, the, in the literary world, but thinking about, you know, in the contemporary moment, it seems like we need to go back to some of that as well, like, Thinking about what are the what are the representations of classes in interaction with each other? Mm. Because it seems like what's happened in more recent decades is that you see a kind of marginalization of mm-hmm. um, of you know working class people of all backgrounds, often in 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 cultural representations, whether you know
1: the celebration of the entrepreneur and mm-hmm. you, you know sort of folks sort that of w- atomization of communities or.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. or that we just that w- that there's you know compared to say you know um, um, you know movies you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. TV programs uh, you know mm-hmm. that, you know so that in the past that there were more sort of working class figures as part of that um, oh, in the way that there's yeah. not so much in the current moment but th- right. thinking about you know where I think you know there's a kind of like invisibilizing yes. of of kind of large segments of the the population and thinking about not only yeah. kind of countering that but also thinking about really the interclass moments between different classes. You you know, because I feel like one of the things that's happened, too, is that there's fewer moments of inter-class interaction now Mm -hmm. in our current period. Um, You know, say the Mm -hmm. World War II generation that happened through the military for men anyway, or there's kind of like different kinds of, you know, kind of. Spaces in in even things
1: like public transportation, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, those are fleeting moments, but they are. And
0: and I think it's a sign of the failure. So it's I totally take Mm -hmm. that as a good question Mm -hmm. to ask in terms of artworks, and it's I think it's a sign of the failure. It might be my failure, but it might be the failure of like where fiction is right now. That my mind immediately went to. I was like, well, you know, Bruce Springsteen, maybe Mm -hmm. hip hop music. You know, like Mm -hmm. there are places in the popular culture where those sorts of conflicts of like economic Mm-hmm. are addressed. But then, yeah, when I think about England, I think about Zadie Smith. I mean, I mm-hmm. do think that there are novelists in England doing it. Um, mm-hmm. In America, mm-hmm. it's definitely harder to think about who those people are. When right. I think about the sorts of existential despair, we've talked like we've talked about Sheila Hedy on here and um, mm-hmm. um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Mosa Feg, if that's her name. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those are all, those are not, those don't those leave the class dynamic invisible for mm-hmm. sure I, mm-hmm. I agree with that point
1: yeah um,
2: and i do i uh, thinking about it, i'm not sure if you're um some of the discussion around the precariat too coming out of guy standing's um, book on the precariat and mm-hmm. one of the this goes back to you were um mentioning basic income right which yeah. is one of the things right. that gets argued there and that's another interesting you know question then is that another way to go but i really worry as an anthropologist that focuses on work, and I'd be curious to know, Elizabeth, your, your mm-hmm. thoughts on this, but it seems like a lot of that discussion about basic income, I mean, it ignores the, the the social aspects of work and the, the, right. the importance of work to people, f- you know, f- feeling that they have some kind of importance in life and sort of going through right. these materials in Southeast Chicago for the museum project you know, you see this over and over again in oral histories and in the stuff yep. people say like the sense of pride that comes out of work, really even re- really horrible and dangerous right. work. And does that whole basic income idea, which came, kind of seems kind of Silicon Valley-esque in right. some ways to me, because it's like then you don't have to kind of fix work or make it better. Right. You just kind of, you know, do Well, this I think one
1: thing. interesting res- or sort of contribution to that discussion mm-hmm. is the James Ferguson right. give a man a fish, right? Because he really – and I just really like the title because, you know, sort of like – give a man a fish. You know? <laughs> um, and he has a great com- discussion in there about sort of this idea of work being, you know, providing a sense of value, but also that itself kind of playing into this notion of work as um, as a moral activity and the flip side of it, right? That the flip side um, often gets mobilized against people who who don't have work as being... You know, lazy or get a job. That's a huge nineteenth century. Yeah. I mean, that's
0: Henry right. Mayhew. It's those who cannot work and those who will not. Work. Exactly. There's that he, notion of the undeserving poor. Yeah. yeah.
1: and he discusses yeah. particularly particularly that in the nineteenth century. So, I mean, his intervention, and I think there are problems with it. One of the big problems, I think, has to do with the um, environmental implications of how where is that money coming from for that basic income? You know, and um, yeah. in Southern Africa, it's often coming from. Extraction, but, um, but so, um, but I think you know one intervention would be to say, well, let's actually look at this idea of the relationship between work and value and think a little critically about that too. Not necessarily saying there's that yeah. we kind of completely ignore it, but but it too can be yeah. available for sympathy.
0: And since a moment can't go by in which I don't mention Hannah Arendt, I will say <laughs> that like the distinction she makes between labor, work, and action seems worth thinking about mm-hmm. there too, because it's like we use the word work to lump all of those things together, and there are types of work we do that you know right. exist at, in a you know in a space where right I mean it's it's either degrading or it's it's corporeally degrading and dangerous or mm-hmm. it just you know life shortening mm-hmm. and there's other types of work. I mean I'm sure we can all think of the things that we love doing, like making a podcast, for example. Example, or like mm-hmm. when I'm in the classroom, yeah, that's or, or the work that I something. would define as yeah. action, right? Because yeah. it's satisfying. It has a kind of pastoral quality to it, uh, right. and that. So, so in other words, we could we could nuance those distinctions rather than thinking the way the utilitarian economists of the mid 19th century taught us to think, as if you know extraction of value provided a like per hour basis on which everything could be valued. Like in other mm-hmm. words, that, that isn't that's one paradigm that you can use. Like but basically by the logic of utilitarianism, if you like doing it, it's not work. Right? Right. right. Because if somebody doesn't have to pay you to do it, then it's not really work. Well, right. That just seems like a very depleted account <laughs> of what yes. counts as meaningful Particularly
1: work. Particularly when there's the not work. enough work to go around.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and you know and again, like this is in the you know the moment of North and South is the moment when you know, the economy is waking up to the realization that, like, people are going to have to be compelled or induced to go into the factories and labor. And mm-hmm. in the colonial context, it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's the story of the late 19th century empire as well. It's not right. about how much land you can control. It's how much labor you can control. Right. So right. so that's a control Particularly mechanism. Particularly when so, people
1: have other right. options. Right? So, Chris,
0: I totally hear what you're saying about the way in which we have invested work with all of this value and meaning. I just think that too has a historical genealogy right. that we can think about how it couples and decouples over the generations.
1: Yeah. Should we go to yeah. recallable books? We totally should. Okay. Yeah. Um, so mine was um, The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell. Um, yeah. But one of the things I like about it that sort of reminds me of, of, of your work is the way in which it has this kind of um, it's sort of two books that are connected to each other. The first one is a sociological study Absolutely, of workers yeah. in the north of England near near Wigan, um, and really excellent sociology, um, uh, including you know counting beds and all kinds of you know very very detailed data. Um, and then the second part of it is a kind of um, rumination and sort of personal essay about. Uh, class and about class feeling and about kind of um, the visceralness of um, feelings of repugnance towards the working class and this really um, – and why, you know, sort of as a way of mobilizing why people – more people aren't socialist. Um, and, you know, I just think it's extremely um, kind of moving and – and um, you know, just explains a lot in a way that, um, yeah, he sort of gets at something about the kind of affect of class that that people don't always get at. Mm -hmm. Chris, what do you have for us?
2: I was thinking a, a, a great book to go back to would be Jane Addams' 20 Years at Hull House. Mm. Um, because to me, that it uh, um, it has a lot of parallels for me in thinking about Gaskell's work. I mean, Gaskell's work is, is a bit earlier. Um, mm-hmm. Jane Adams' Hull House was like um, 1890s into, mm-hmm. er, into the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But similarly, um, a kind of feminist sensibility, mm-hmm. thinking about the kind of social questions of the day in, in terms of kind of a, a multi-class kind of organizing or analysis. I mean, so... Right. What Hull House did was, you know, creating this house in a poor immigrant industrial neighborhood and the idea of of sort of being good neighbors um, and mm-hmm. and no you know creating this kind of space at these settlement houses where you know sort of people in the community could could you know come in and they're you know they're, they'd do child care and they would do artistic programs and they mm-hmm. would have playgrounds and they worked on sanitation issues and they worked on child labor and you know fixing that fa- you know so there's yeah. a whole range of you know progressive social era reforms and a lot of the women that came out of hull house ended up you know being some of the the, the most prominent um, thinking you think about somebody like Francis Perkins who was the one who really mm. kind of created social security under MDR yeah. under, um, under right for, yeah. for example yeah. so the influence of that kind of Hull House model of using a different model for thinking about how do we think about um, um, class relations of, of you know Communication and sort of mm-hmm. well.
1: Anyway, I don't. And also the neighborhoodness of it.
2: E- exactly, and so yeah. you know, on the one hand, you know, people have criticized it for being kind of you know these upper middle class women, and there's you know certain mm-hmm. kind of patronizing elements to that, which right. may be true. But thinking about also in the current moment, how can we think about sort of multi class kind of organizing in different kinds mm-hmm. of social experiments? So looking back to the nineteenth century, not only for the problems, but what are the also some of the social movements that came out of that that had right. a big influence?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah
0: are you guys are making me feel really bad because you're kicking it old school, whereas my my recommendation is <laughs> actually from two thousand fifteen. Yeah, I wanted I'm, I'm sort of on the other from end the
1: type. So. Yeah,
0: kind of. So I wanted to I I kind of went all in on the sort of precarity model, and I wanted to recommend a book um, called The Dog by Joseph O'Neill, which is um, uh, set. Uh, it's a it's a, a young london banker who ends up in an unnamed uh, middle eastern city where he's basically kind of an it's like a new he's a uh, in a techno world he's essentially a servant or a minder for a spoiled young emirate or or, you know son of an emir Mm -hmm. and um, whatever the whatever the diminutive of emir is emirnik Um, and uh, it's just to me it was it was kind of some of the things I was talking about it's like coming out the other end from an era in which people's labor is defined by their fixed position Mm -hmm. it's more like what it means to live in the precarity of coils of money in fact I could have recommended money by Martin Amos. that would be maybe mm. another early version of the same book. Mm-hmm. but it's the point of like what it means to be Mr. Nobody from nowhere right. Um, right. yeah yeah but 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 the reason I feel a little guilty about it is Chris, I do think your point about the invisibility of the classed relationship that actually includes, the, like the laboring body is like that this is certainly guilty of that because it's, it's in the world in which like encounters with people from a truly different class from him are just essentially across a great gulf. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't solve the problem that you identified of like, where are the stories of that, yeah. you know, that world. I agree with that. So Mm.
1: So we've come to the end. And I just want to thank you, Chris Wally, for joining us in this conversation. And thank you, John, for joining us. Oh, my god.
0: It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. You you will hear from
1: us all soon again. And I hope that we get the chance to hear from you, dear listeners. Recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden. Web design and social media, is done by Matthew Schratz. We always want to hear from you with your comments, your criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly, or you can contact us on social media and via our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast joy. You may be interested in checking out past episodes like Christina Thompson's on Polynesia, or opiate addiction, the iconology of female heads of state, as well as interviews with Zadie Smith, Samuel Delaney, and Shishin Liu. And uh, we're going to have an upcoming episode with uh, Ajanta Subramanian on the topic of merit and meritocracy. Thanks for listening.